Welcome to the JNNP Podcast, a series where we discuss cutting-edge research published by the BMJ's Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Christos Ganos, a movement disorder specialist practicing in Germany, about his article entitled, Distinguishing Functional from Primary Ticks, a Study of Expert Video Assessments. Before we get into our conversation, just a reminder that you can subscribe to our podcast on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We hope you like today's discussion. Well, Christos, it's really nice to finally pin you down. I feel like I've been hunting you down for months now. Um, so it's really good to finally kind of, you know, virtually meet you. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. So from what I understand, you practice in Berlin, Germany. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct um, thus far. Uh, but from next year, I'm moving to the University of Toronto as an associate professor, and I'm joining joining Tony Lang's uh, movement disorders group with Susan Fox, uh, Alfonso Fasano, Connie Myers, and many other people. Yes, many other wonderful colleagues. Well, today we're here to discuss the article that um, was recently published in the JNNP, and it's your article that was entitled Distinguishing Functional Ticks from Primary Ticks, a Study of Video of Expert Video Assessments. So why did you decide to study this? What brought that on? First of all, this study is very simple, and it's a study uh, we've been meaning to do for a long time. Let me provide some background, perhaps, on, on this topic for, for all the listeners. We know that in movement disorders, we classify uh, what we see based on you know phenomenology. So it's a very visually driven field. It's also neurology, but we see phenomena, we classify them, and then we, we rely that different phenomena will have distinct etiologies and pathophysiological mechanisms. So sometimes we might have phenomena that resemble that might have phenomena that overlap, but will have very, very distinctive etiologies. And this is the case of primary disorders and functional disorders. And, and we know this for dystonia, for example. We have had patients, and when I say we have had, I mean for the last 120 years, uh, patients that might present with something that presents as a dystonic phenotype. And then people would argue for a long time, is this a primary disorder? Then later we had genetics. Okay, it is a genetic disorder, but we also have functional disorders that might present with similar symptoms. And, and it has been a long, a long windy road in neurology to, to be able to distinguish this. In the case of ticks, and ticks always have a kind of satellitic position in our neurological field. People, uh, many people don't consider ticks as a neurological issue. There has been the same debate do patients have ticks because of psychological reasons? Can you have ticks, and this is the language of 120 years ago, that are of hysterical origin or functional ticks? And, or do you have primary and functional ticks? And if you do, how do you tell them apart? So this is a long debate that has been ongoing, but again, a satellitic debate in neurological field that is predominated by stroke, etc., for its own reasons or for several reasons. However, in the last years we started, and I'm speaking for the last 10 to 12 years, we started noticing that the cases that present in tick disorders clinics, and this can be in neurology or neuropsychiatric clinics, um, we started noticing that some of the cases differ in characteristics. And we started having difficulties in being able to distinguish 
and based on what terms, if this is a primary tick disorder, as has been described, or is this a functional phenomenon? And still, this was not so prevalent. If you look at the papers from 15 years ago, you will see that uh, many of these uh, functional ticks are, are very rare, so to say. But then during the COVID times, there was also an increase in prevalence of people presenting with, you can say, functional ticks or functional tick-like behaviors to really an increasing amount. And and therefore, it was paramount to try to understand if we can have phenomenological classifiers to distinguish between primary and functional ticks. And that was what motivated the study. Yeah. So, I mean, from what I'm gathering from you, there's really no reliable criteria to differentiate currently functional from primary ticks. And your paper mentions there's also no biomarkers. So this is clearly something that's quite challenging, particularly for me. I'm not a movement disorder specialist. So, you know, I, when I read your paper, I thought this work was very important and very interesting. And for the listeners out there to break it down, what is a tick? Like, how do you define that? Mm, that's that's actually work we're doing now within the Movement Disorder Society Task Force, and it's 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 a great question. So you're hitting all the points that I can speak for hours <laughs> about, uh, but let me provide you an answer that actually based on on Mej and Fendel's um, thesis that they published uh, 120 years ago, and interestingly translated to English by Kinner Wilson. So a tick is um, movement or sound. So people say movements including vocalizations, for example that appears, that resembles voluntary actions. So it can be indistinguishable from a voluntary action, but appears repetitive and is inopportune, inopportune to social context. So you will have somebody turning their head to the right or their head turning to the right, depends how you classify volition or not. And when this happens repetitively with interruptions irregularly, and you wonder what, what is happening here? What is this person doing? Why is this like it's, does he want to look to the right or is it happening? Then it's actually you're, you're dealing with a tick. So something that resembles a voluntary action but appears repetitively and breaks the ongoing social interaction within a certain context. Are ticks typically occurring at regular intervals or can they be irregular in their presentation? They're typically irregular. So you don't you you might have rarely rhythmic ticks, but, but in most cases these are irregular presentation. So you will have one event here, one event later, or five events at one time, and then no events for some time. And, you know, ticks also have like some additional characteristics that are not part of this this longer definition that I provided. And one is that they are commonly preceded, particularly in adults, by premonitory urges. These are unpleasant sensations. We can, we can understand them as people without ticks, if somebody asks us not to close our eyes for a while, not to blink, then we have the sensation. It's similar and we have to do something. And ticks can be voluntarily suppressed. So people can also suppress them for a while with their volitional capacity. And this is what distinguishes them from other jerky phenomena like myoclonus or chorea, for example. What are the most common types of tick conditions that we should know about as general neurologists out there? Yeah, like... Up to four years ago, and still though, the most, most common condition you will see ticks within the framework of primary tick disorders, uh, particularly in children, most commonly affecting boys. And primary tick disorders, when we speak about that, we can speak about uh, Tourette syndrome, which is nothing else than uh, a person having two motor ticks that can be there for longer than one year before the age of 18 and one phonic or vocal tick. So it could be a vocalization or it could just be a simple supraglottic sound like sniffing. 
and these three ticks it's the bare minimum two motor ticks and one phonic tick to uh, receive the diagnosis of Tourette syndrome but they don't need to be concurrent so a child might present with some repetitive blinking at the age of six with some shoulder shrugging at the age of seven and some uh, sniffing at the age of nine and this is already um, enough to say that this person has Tourette syndrome. It doesn't have to be a disorder, and this is another discussion, but it fulfills, it satisfies the criteria of Tourette syndrome, which is the most common primary tic disorder we will encounter in clinics. And there are also, of course, chronic motor tic disorders as part of primary tic disorders. This is where people only present with motor tics, no phonic tics, and there is also the chronic phonic tic disorder, it's rather rare that people will only present with phonations or vocalizations, actually very rare. So this is the one big cluster of tic disorders that we will see in the clinics, the most common one. And then in the past, it was less common, functional tics, but during the COVID-19 period, then there was really a surge of cases. So in some clinics, in my specialist clinic, for example, in Berlin, we had many cases presenting with functional tics, sometimes up to half of, of my clinic practice was functional tics for a period. So this will be also a common etiology to be on the lookout for. And you will have secondary tic disorders. This will be people presenting with tics as part of other conditions. Typically in these secondary conditions, tics go hand in hand with choreic disorders, which is interesting. So you will have this in Huntington's disease, you will have it in choreacanthocytosis, and you will have other rare occasions of, of tick disorders, but, but their ticks will rarely be the only problem and you will usually have additional clinical signs that will most likely predominate uh, the clinical severity of the syndrome that the person presents with. That was a very lovely explanation. So from what I understand from you, when we talk about primary tick disorders, we're talking about conditions like Tourette syndrome, chronic motor tics, and uh, chronic phonic tics. Exactly. So those are kind of some major classifications. And then before, you had mentioned that some primary tics have a genetic component. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Like, it, do all primary tics have a genetic component, or which are the most common ones that do? So there, there is um, a strong association and a strong the presence of tic disorders of a primary tic disorder in a person increases the risk of their family also having tics. Or the other way around, if I have had tics, for example, so my children will have a very high risk of, of developing tics as well as part of a neurodevelopmental uh, phenomenon. This does not mean that it's a disorder, but this means that they are commonly clustered in families. Speaking of genetics, though, despite a lot of work and a lot of efforts to try to pin down a monogenic cause of tics, this has not been the case because it's probably really not the case. It's probably a polygenic uh, disorder. And people try in different ways to, to pinpoint whether there is some kind of culprit, but we still are very far from that. Having said that, what I try to say is that it doesn't work at this point in time to send for genetic investigations in somebody who has primary tics. I see. That's really helpful, especially for me to know, you know, if I encounter a patient like this. So from what I'm gathering, it is important, though, as part of the history to ask about family history. Absolutely. So does anyone else in the family have this? Yeah. And then you mentioned secondary tic disorders, and clearly I don't treat these enough. But what lab work would you do if you're concerned about a secondary tic disorder? if anything. Yeah, so it really depends on what your suspicion is. So there are, there are several categories of, of tics 
and in several categories of, of patients one might have that you would want to 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 do further investigations and when we speak about so i'm an adult neurologist but often i see children or adolescents so if there are particular um, neuropsychiatric profiles uh, in the people that we see then we might consider whether there is a strong association for example or a strong prevalence of ticks also in people who are on the spectrum and there we might have also additional clinical phenomena so it, it really depends what guides you or if it's a 40 year old person who has also Korea alongside ticks of course you will go down a different diagnostic route so there is no one size fits all you really need to do your neurological examination take a good history and then see what you need to go for when we did a study within the movement disorder society and asked movement disorders clinicians around the world um, this is a different paper how do they investigate ticks were surprised to see that also when they felt that it's a primary tick disorder they still did an MRI to exclude some lesions or an EEG. So these are really not useful when you're certain that this is a primary tick disorder. So if I have a, a person who's an adult and they come to my clinics and say, oh, I've had ticks since I was six or seven, now they're 25 or 30 or 40, then I, I don't pursue investigations per se, unless there is another specific reason, but there has to be specific reasons. Otherwise it's just um, not needed. What kind of specific reasons, like what would make you want to get lab testing or what would make you want to get an MRI that a patient would tell you? If somebody presents, for example, with dementia, you know, like really if somebody presents with chorea, if somebody presents with a severe neuropathy, with ataxia, with something that's additional to to ticks, uh, just ticks by, itself, by themselves, no. And for example, people often think of lesions and we published this study on brain lesions that were associated with ticks and we did network analysis. This is extremely rare. So we looked at the entire medical uh, literature um, historically and we could only identify, at least in contemporary times, like around a handful of cases or so 20, 20 something cases, but not more than that. So I don't think you need to worry for, for secondary regions in people who just present ticks with a long history that's compatible with primary tick disorder. That's really helpful. And then, you know, for some of these primary tick disorders, what, I guess, would you pull for treatment? Like, what are some of the treatment options that you've utilized? Mm. And perhaps, though, let me, yes, it, it might not be, so you, you might have some, in some cases, tick lookalikes, you know, extremely rare in children. You might have some epileptic phenomena, so you need to think about that. People might misclassify ticks, but in, instead there's these stereotypes, or people actually sometimes might mix the phenomena of ticks and chorea, because chorea is also partially suppressible in some cases. So you you really have to make sure that you 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 know you're you're setting your phenomenological diagnosis correct and then the syndromic classification correct. So this is important, of course, not to forget that. And also having a tick disorder does not protect you from not having a second disorder at some point in your life. For example, I think that was my first patient in Queen Square, actually. Um, it was a young gentleman who had just turned 18 and who had had ticks at the age of six, but at the age of 14, he developed also additional, completely involuntary phenomenon that they were prompted by sudden movement. He was falling on the floor, having this, this um, paroxysmal, kinesiogenic, dyskinetic events for 10 to 15 seconds. And then we could show that next to his Tourette syndrome, he also had a PKD, a paroxysmal kinesiogenic dyskinesia due to PRRT2 mutations. So these will be extremely rare cases, but of course, always keep an open mind that one diagnosis does not protect you for another one. Sorry, I just needed to bring this in. And in terms of treating ticks, 
uh, primary ticks. The big question is, and this is good for our practice in general, we have to start first with psychoeducation. And this is something that very often in neurology, we don't do so well or we don't do so much. So we really have to spend time with our patients with uh, tick disorders and with every of our patients anyhow to explain where this disorder comes from, which very often also highlights our ignorance. And it reminds us to be humble how, <laughs> how, we, how much we know. So, but psychoeducation is the most important thing when we start to considering treating ticks. And this includes explaining that this is a neurobiological phenomenon. It's nobody's fault. It's not the parent's fault. It's not the child's fault. It's very common that people have this. And particularly with this mixed phenomenological notion, but he can stop it. Why doesn't he stop it all the time? Why is he like this? What's wrong with him? You know, this is something that you sometimes hear. And it's, it's important to say that the fact that the phenomenon can be voluntarily suppressed does not mean that the generation of the phenomenon is also voluntarily controlled, you know? <laughs> so this is very important to bring in. And then depending on the level of knowledge that each one of us has, try to explain the neurobiology of this condition because people want to know. Try to bring in dopaminergic reinforcement, uh, that is inhibition, the models of our time now, they might change over time, but this is what we know now. So it's important and try to incorporate insular activation for premonitory urges. And what does this mean? All these components are important because we need our patients, the people who come to us to ask for our scientific advice to understand the best we can to, to tell them and the best they can what's happening exactly in order then to use this knowledge and have an informed discussion about the ways that we can approach the treatments. And when we have the psychoeducative discussion, we also bring in the vulnerability in people with tick disorders in developing other neuropsychiatric symptoms. For example, we know that 60% of people with primary ticks will have obsessive compulsive symptoms or disorder. Another 60%, and this is because they overlap, people might have both, might have also ADHD. And this is very important for children. And as people grow up, then we have mood disorders, depression and sleep disorders, anxiety disorders are really common in adolescents and adults with tics. And the comorbidities might change over time. So we need to inform my patients because sometimes they might come for to treat the blinking tick or something in the face or in the neck, but actually it becomes very clear that the more pressing issue is a severe depression, severe anxiety disorder, severe sleep disorder, can be even substance abuse in order to calm down from the anxiety and the sleep disorder. So it's a complex condition and it always starts, treatment always starts with psychoeducation. And once we have established this common language between ourselves and our patients, then we move towards finding out what is the most pressing problem. And because this is a talk about ticks, if ticks are the most pressing problem, then we address this with different ways. There are the American uh, Academy of Neurology guidelines published by, by a good friend of mine, uh, led by, by, by Tamara Pringsheim, who's a professor of neurology in the University of Calgary. And according to these guidelines, and they reflect actually common practice, uh, the number one recommendation for treating ticks would be pursuing uh, behavior therapy. And very specific, uh, there is a, a type of program that's called CBIT, Comprehensive Behavioral Intervention for Ticks. And this is based on habit reversal therapy. So essentially, people 
make a hierarchical listing of the most disturbing ticks, and then they slowly learn to capitalize on the capacity that they anyhow have to voluntarily suppress ticks, how to learn this and to improve this in order to suppress these ticks better and efficiently to a point of, of not having them anymore, or at least to a point that they're not bothersome. Another behavior therapy is called exposure response prevention, and this essentially teaches people to increase the voluntary tick inhibitory capacity slowly, time by time, and withstanding the unpleasant premonitory urge. So this is the first type of treatments, but these are the behavioral treatments. And they are first line because there's really no side effects uh, and everybody can and should try them if possible. The problem there is finding therapists and get cost coverage in different parts of the world. Yeah, I imagine that finding therapists would be difficult. But from what I'm gathering from you, you know, first line of treatment is discussing their tick with them, that it's not their fault, and, and you know, kind of understanding kind of that aspect of things and talking to family that they can't help this. It's just something that's happened to them. And then you mentioned things like um, cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure response therapy. And, of course, you know, I find that problem in Rhode Island, too, finding the right psychologists or, you know, or, or group of staff that can comprehensively do this. I imagine that would be challenging. But then what about medical options? Like what, what's your go-to medical treatment for them? Yeah. And cognitive behavior therapy, not generic cognitive behavior therapy, but particularly this comprehensive behavior intervention with tics. Because very commonly people have CBT, so cognitive behavior therapies, but you need extra information for to apply this habit reversal, etc. So in terms of medications, we have several options. If it's a very localized problem, it's a very local tick, then we can always offer botulinum toxin, particularly in adults. So if there is eye blinking is the issue or some minor neck movements, etc., or even if there are more sudden and uh, disturbing, stronger neck movements, we can offer botulinum toxin. But this is for localized ticks. And for somebody who has many, many ticks, this is not an option. But it can be a good local treatment. In terms of medications that we will apply to reduce overall ticks, then the best efficacy we have, the best drugs we have with the best efficacy are antipsychotics. And um, there we don't have really good head-to-head evidence of the use of antipsychotics, um, the selective use of one antipsychotic versus others. But most people all over the world prefer, for example, aripiprazole as the first agent of choice um, to treat ticks best pharmacological agent. And this usually goes, is the selection is based on side effects. So which of these medications has the most favorable side effect profile? And aripiprazole has established itself as, as, as that. But there are other options as well. Risperidone in Germany or in German-speaking languages, people use thiopride. And, and we have like an array of antipsychotic uh, medications to use. And some people also use tetrabenazine, although the studies so far have not really showed a strong effect of tetrabenazine to treat chicks. That's the one that I'm the most familiar with. Like when you're in, in residency and, and training from my many years ago, that's kind of what was taught to me. So it's interesting that you mentioned the aripiprazole. I'm sure you movement disorder specialists use that a lot, but me in general and autoimmune, I, I don't pull for that very often. So thanks for sharing that. It's, Yes, absolutely. And it's it's interesting. There is a, there is a, a geographic distribution of choices. 
And indeed, in the States, tetrabenazine is very common. However, we really don't have good data. And there is a new study on det- tetrabenazine, the, the newer substance that showed actually also not a good efficacy profile. But many people also, including the people who conducted the study, feel that it's difficult to capture the efficacy in the studies that have been performed. But, you know, it's, it's a difficult topic. Well, let's switch over to functional ticks. So how would you differentiate a functional tick from a primary tick? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the point of the paper. So in many cases, it is impossible to differentiate one type of, in a very specific phenomenon, let's take a repetitive blinking. How can I say that somebody is repetitively blinking because they want to, because it is a tick, because it's a functional disorder, because they have something in their eye? So for single phenomena, it is nearly impossible. And that was the point of this study, to see whether people can agree on how they label different phenomena. And the etiology of different phenomena. And the answer is people cannot really do it. But we have some semiological classifiers that help us do so in a syndromic fashion. What do I mean? We don't have a good marker of what a primary tick disorder is, but we know that many, many people in the world who have Tourette syndrome will have very certain characteristics. The age of onset will be in a particular time in childhood, most commonly around the sixth year of age. People we develop with ticks will start with ticks around the face, head and shoulders, and this will slowly, insidiously increase over time until the age of 12. So we have syndromic characteristics. We know that people will report urges. We know that people will be able to suppress them. So when we have a person who presents, let's say, just a very simple example, at the age of 30, and I said, since yesterday, I have all this happening to my body. I don't have any feeling. I cannot suppress it. But it looks phenomenologically like a tick then we'll say, okay, the syndromic classifiers of this person are very different than what we know for primary tics. Therefore, I cannot label this as a primary tic disorder. And then I'm looking, are there classifiers that will help me label this as a functional neurological disorder? And if I find them, then I'll move to there. But on a single phenomenon, we can never do that. But we have to have the syndromic classifiers. I think this is the main point and the takeaway message. I see. And, you know, obviously the purpose of of the study that you published was to determine basically how do you differentiate functional from primary ticks. And you did this by um, studying expert video assessments. So tell me a little bit about like, how did you put this study together? Like what were your methods? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's again, a very, very, very simple study, but indeed, I think, I think very important one. So what we did is um, in, we're seeing patients over time and we have a specific protocol of, of filming patients when they are with us, with their consent, obviously, uh, for clinical and research purposes. And then we had different cases, cases that we in Berlin felt that they were primary tick disorder, uh, according to the diagnostic criteria, and cases that we felt that there might be a functional tick disorder, and cases that we felt that there might be a primary tick disorder, but some characteristics over time would be also consistent with functional. So we label them as primary ticks overlaid with functional ticks. So, but this was our feeling and our feeling does not amount uh, too much. So nobody can prove what we, what we feel, you know, just, we, just our diagnostic labeling. But we took these cases and we extracted two and a half minute videos showcasing their strongest phenomenological features. And then we asked eight of the world's uh, most seasoned movement disorders experts to look at these videos 
And our diagnostic classification was irrelevant. What we only looked at is whether people agree between themselves what they see. So we presented these videos and we asked, okay, first of all, what did you see? So we wanted to see if people paid attention. Did they note down what actually is on the video, etc.? What type of ticks did you see? Would you label them as ticks? How would you label them? Is there variability in this phenomena? And then we asked them to tell us, how would you diagnose this phenomenon? And people between four categories, one was a primary tick, one was a functional tick, one was primary overlaid with functional ticks. And in some cases, we left the fourth category if people felt that the movements or sounds that they see, the phenomena they see, they are not ticks at all because we don't have good boundaries. If I, you know, smash with my fist over the wall and I tell you I did this because I have an urge and I will do this repetitively, is this a tick? Or am I angry? What's happening? So we don't have good classifiers where a tick ends and what is a different repetitive behavior. So we had this fourth category as well for non-tick disorders. And then we also asked people whether how confident they are in their diagnosis and what were the main phenomenological classifiers that helped them reach this diagnosis. Was it the semiology, the type of ticks, the severity, was it the body distribution, or how variable they are over time, or whether are other phenomenological classifiers. So that was the first part of the study. And this was particularly motivated from seeing very often experts expressing their opinions online about whether a phenomenon is a primary tick or a functional tick and, and having this argument. So we wanted to see, okay, if we do this in a properly standardized fashion, will people agree or not? Is there a way to tell this apart? I've seen I've seen the movement disorders have discussions, and it's very interesting to watch them um, because there are usually a diversity of opinions, which is always fun. It is. Uh, same time, we published last week a little letter on, on exactly this phenomenon of viral medical discussions for movement disorders videos, and we ponder whether sharing is truly caring. Uh, but this is a different topic to discuss. So people should be mindful when when they engage in commercial social media platforms on medical topics, I think. Yeah, but of course. Yes. Be, <laughs> and so in the second part of the study, beyond the phenomenology, then we provided for the same cases, then uh, a brief history vignette. So, and in this history vignette, we had some characteristics on age at presentation, in the clinics, when did the movement disorders appeared, how severely did they spread, was there premonitory urges, were people able to suppress them, were there other neurological symptoms or other clinical symptoms in general. And providing this medical history, we then asked our experts, do you wish to keep your same diagnosis or do you wish to change to a new one? And then we looked again on diagnostic agreement and we look again on how confident people are, diagnostic confidence, and then we asked them, okay, what did you base your diagnosis this time on? And which part of this information? Was it the age of presentation? The age of onset of repetitive behaviors? Was it precipitants or contextual factors? Was it the type of first tick changes in clinical presentation? The time course from onset to maximum severity, present of urges, ability to suppress ticks, an array of factors. And then we gathered them to see what do experts use to inform their diagnostic uh, capacity? So this was the setup of the study. That's actually pretty interesting and pretty smart. So from what I understand, you took eight experts in the field, movement disorders, and they were asked to do two things. One, the first thing they had to do was a video assessment. So they're just looking at, firstly, 
um, 24 case videos of adults with either primary or functional tics, and then they are asked to select the corresponding diagnosis. And then this was a two-part survey. So after they kind of looked at the video and put in their assessment just based on the video alone, then you gave them the second part of this, the survey, which was the history of the patient. And then based on the history of the patient, you asked them, you know, what do you think about your diagnosis? Are you sticking to the fact that it's a primary tic disorder, or now do you think it's more of a functional disorder. So I think that's really an interesting way to do things. I wouldn't have thought to do things that way, but again, I do autoimmune neurology. So, you know, <laughs> just, just looking at just a patient video to start is not something I would have thought to do, but obviously in the movement world, that's pretty common. So then what did you find? What were the results of the study? The first thing we learned from, from the study is that based on phenomenological observation alone, it's impossible to classify to set the diagnosis either on a primary tic disorder or functional tic disorder, with some exceptions, but people most commonly will not agree, and our experts did not agree. The diagnostic agreement across the board for all the cases that our experts saw was 0.21, and that's in a scale from 0 to 1. 0.21, that's a fair type of agreement. Um, very low, actually. Interestingly, there was a dissociation with the diagnostic confidence that the experts had. They actually felt confident that their diagnosis is correct, and yet, there is a strong disagreement or there is a not so much agreement for these cases. The second thing we learned for the study is when you do provide clinical information, there will be some factors that are helpful for distinguishing primary from functional tics. And this will be tic semiology, age at tic concept, presence of premonitory urges and tic suppressibility. And in some cases will be also the temporal latency between tick onset and peak severity. So how often does somebody reach peak severity? We know in primary ticks, this takes years. We know in functional ticks, this takes days or weeks. Other specific tick triggers. These are factors that are helpful and will increase diagnostic agreement. This is all we speak about is diagnostic agreement because we don't have a gold standard or we didn't have at the time of the study. And a final point that the study shows us is that you can have some agreement in cases with primary ticks, actually, after providing clinical history, good agreement. You can have some agreement for the cases of functional ticks, but still in cases where people believe that you have primary ticks overlaid with functional ticks, then our diagnostic classifiers are still poor. At the time the study was made, there were no criteria. Parallel to the study, though, the European Society for the Study of Tourette's, uh, which I'm also part of, and this was an effort, again, led by Tamara Prings, some published criteria on distinguishing primary from functional tics. Again, only these two categories, not primary tics overlaid with functional tics. And these criteria include phenomenological factors, but this is just one of them, but also include the age of tic onset and how fast tics develop the rapid evolution of symptoms. So you have three major criteria, so to say, to diagnose, to distinguish from primary to functional tics. Age at symptom onset, tics that are after the age of 12 years old, according to this S criteria, have a strong suspicion that there might be a functional etiology there. But you do have to have a rapid evolution of symptoms, days to weeks, but not years. And there will be some phenomenological classifiers that need to be part of this in order for somebody to be able to say, okay, I believe this is a functional tick disorder. And again, these are consensus criteria. We now don't have any gold standard. So for what I'm gathering from you, you basically found that it's really difficult to differentiate between 
primary versus functional tics. And a video assessment alone is just not enough. You can't just walk into a patient room or, or in the door frame and just say, yep, I know what that is. Um, you do need to sit and talk and ask all these very pertinent questions to parse out the history that's really going to help you and could kind of change your, your diagnostic outcome. And then for the non-movement um, disorder specialists, such as myself, how in general do you as movement disorders experts classify functional tics? Like what are the what are the common characteristics of a functional tech? So, yes. So if you if you do set your mind as a non-movement disorders expert that this is something that resembles a voluntary action that's repetitive, irregular, and resembles a tick, so you are like down the tick rubric and you want to know if it's a primary tick or a functional tick, if it's something that appears, let's say this is a very, you know, simple guide appears later in life, not in early childhood, doesn't have premonitory urge, is not suppressible. People often describe it as happening to them, as being part of them. So people with primary tics say, oh, I have to do it because of that, or, you know, I, I just do it, I don't know. Commonly, not always, but commonly. But people with functional tics sometimes will tell you that I, I can have no control over this. You know, it happens completely involuntarily, etc. Over time, this might change. But this would be your rough guide guideline of, of distinguishing clear functional tics from primary tics. And although phenomenology alone will not help you in many cases, there will be some phenomenon we published on this that are not tics. And, and you know, the, it's, it's easy. So if hitting other people, for example, can never be a primary tick. There is no primary tick of hitting other people uh, repetitively. And there, uh, we publish on this as alloaggression, misdiagnosed as primary ticks. So there will be some types of behaviors that are not part of a primary tick syndrome and they're really spot on. If you see them, then you know that this is, this is uh, a different kind of diagnosis. It might not be functional, it might be a very different category anyhow. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful for for me as a reminder for me because sometimes these patients pop into my office and I'm always like, huh, how do I do this? And usually I have to send them over to a movement disorders <laughs> expert because as you mentioned, this is just, you know, really, really difficult even for people in the field. You know, I have to say one of my favorite parts about the article that you guys publish are these three sections in the very front of the article that says, what is already known about this topic? what this study adds, and how this study may, might affect research or practice policy. I thought that was really lovely how that was outlined in the article because it makes it very clear for people um, the general information that they need to take home from this article. So I really do encourage all of our listeners to read the article if they haven't already. Um, all right. Well, you know, it's been so great getting to meet you and talk to you. And so thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate all your insights. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I hope my lengthy answers can provide some clarity to this issue. There is also a 2019 neurology paper on whether we can distinguish primary from functional tics that lays out, I think, the background of this entire uh, debate. So people might also want to look at that. And thank you very much for this invitation and, and, and trying so much to, to have this talk. Thank you. I hope it was useful for you. Oh, it was really useful for me and hopefully it's useful for our listeners. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you missed it, check out our last discussion on nitrous oxide abuse in the UK. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider leaving us a rating or review on the JNNP podcast page. You can find a link to this in the description of this episode. That's all we have for today. See you next time.